0: Hey, my name's Dave. Welcome to Sedaris. Very glad that you're here. Go Seahawks. Come on. If you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't, there's some on the ends of your rows. You can also use your phone and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going through a series in Hebrews that we're calling A Crisis of Faith. And the book was actually written to A church in the city of Rome, uh, 30 years after Jesus had lived, died, was buried, and resurrected. And the church was in something of a crisis themselves because they were starting to ask the question, is following this Jesus really worth it? They were being persecuted. They were being blamed for fires in the city in Rome. Their lives were literally at stake. Some were being imprisoned, some kicked out of the city, and they were asking themselves, is this really worth it? And the reason that we're calling the series Crisis with a K is that the Greek word for crisis literally means separation. And when we feel separated from God, separated from his promises, separated from all that he has promised to us, both now and in the future, we experience crisis. Last week we talked about how in the wilderness, Israel, after being freed by God through several acts of God, they experienced a crisis. They were wandering in the wilderness and they wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery because at least they knew what they had there. We often find ourselves in the wilderness as well and we feel separation from God and his promises, and we often turn back to those things in our past, which are more familiar, although less than everything God has promised. Less, restful, less full. And only when we consider Jesus, we love to talk about considering Jesus, and we see him clearly, we see who he actually is, and what he's actually done, and what he's actually promising us only then do we remember that our heavenly calling is actually better, that the heavenly rest is actually better, and that the heavenly gift is actually the immeasurable gift that's offered, offered to the people who are called the members of God's house. So in that moment of crisis, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, we said you have to keep moving forward. Rest is only for those who keep moving forward in faith, pushing through the doubt, pushing through the fear towards the fullest promises of God. And today we'll look again at another nuance of life lived on this side of eternity that often ushers, in, uh, ushers us into seasons of crisis. We'll look at that today. But before we do, would you pray with me and ask God to speak to us tonight? Father God, we thank you for this chance to come into your house, the church, but the house is really not a building, it's the people. And so my hope, my great hope is that for those of us who might be new tonight, that they might find rest in this house of God, this people of God, this community of God as we come together and we consider you, Jesus, the founder of our faith, the resurrected one, the bringer of new life, we pray tonight, Lord, that you'd speak through your word, that you'd open our eyes to see you clearly, and that we might understand what it means to live more fully into your promises, no matter where we are, no matter if we're experiencing rest or we're experiencing crisis today. Would you speak? Would you speak? Please speak. In Jesus' name, amen. When you live in a big city like Seattle, right, there's lots of things here that are hard to ignore. The first is that there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people in Seattle. The second thing that you'll notice is that many of these people are not from Seattle. They didn't grow up here. They moved here from somewhere else. Whether it's a job or it's school or it's just the culture, something's brought them here to Seattle. Many of us are not from Seattle but the other thing that we realize is that we're all fighting for the same things right the same degrees the same jobs the same apartments if you've ever tried to get an apartment in the city you know what I'm talking about it's like World War III man bring a knife (laughs) fighting for the same new clients So what's the result of this? Lots of people, a lot of people from all different places around the country that have come here, and we're all fighting for the same things. What does this bring us? Well, in one of the densest cities in the country, Seattle is the eighth densest, we're constantly surrounded by people, but yet, yet, most of the time, we feel completely isolated. Isolated because it seems like Amongst all these people, there's no one that really is looking out for me. There's no one that's really advocating for me. No one that has my well-being at the top of their list. you experienced this? Have you felt this? How can there be so many people yet no one is mediating for me? And so the tendency when we realize all of these things is to come to this conclusion. I am on my own. I must fend for myself, whereas the kids like to say, i got to get mine. i got to get mine. Isn't that what the kids are saying these days? i got to get mine. Many times in my own life, I've felt this. I've, I've felt the angst of being surrounded by so many people but not feeling like anybody's on my side. When I went to UW, tens of thousands of people my age pursuing the same things that I'm pursuing. But I didn't have what I thought was an advocate for me. We're all fighting each other, fighting the curve. Trying to make it to the top of the class, to the top of our program. And then fighting to get the same jobs when we leave. All these people, yet I felt alone. After college... I went off to work for one of the world's uh, biggest financial services firms and I experienced much of the same thing. I started in the Dallas office of my firm and there were 40 new hires at the exact same stage in life as me, just graduated, just finished their master's degrees, working on their CPA, but yet who was my advocate, who was looking out for me in my career who was looking out for my health, my work-life balance. Nobody, it seemed. They'd work us 80-hour weeks. No one would ever ask how we were doing. My immediate superior was trying to impress his or her superior, and his or her superior was trying to impress his or her superior, and his or her superior was trying to make partner. That's kind of the way it went. And so everybody is pressing it down, pressing it down. Give me more, give me more so I can make it myself. I gotta get mine. That was the feeling, that was the sense. Surrounded by tons of people at a very big firm with all sorts of resources but yet left to fend for myself. Uh, I've experienced this with roommates. And you may even experience this if you're living with your spouse. You feel like you're in isolation even though you're surrounded by people who love you and care about you. How is this possible to be living in the same house but not feel like you have anybody that's advocating for you? It happens. So all through all these experiences and many more like it, I've come to realize this. Proximity does not breed advocacy. Proximity does not breed advocacy. Just because there's lots of people around me doesn't mean I've got an advocate. In fact, much of the time what I've found is the exact opposite, that proximity actually breeds competition. So what do we do when we live in a fast-paced, fast-growing city like Seattle? The problem of proximity, it's not going away. The problem of competition, it's not going away. It's only getting stronger. So, are we doomed to live in this universe where we don't have an advocate, where nobody is for us? Everyone is pushing against us, fighting for the same thing. Are we doomed to feel alone without any help? No one to turn to but ourselves. No one to talk to about me and my struggles and my problems. Is this loneliness, this despair, this anxiety that is all wrapped up in this issue, is that my only option? Well, I guess you could move to Montana. Sorry, Jared. Move to Montana and, uh, you know, start a self-sustaining farm. Isolate yourself from all people. Get rid of this proximity problem, this competition problem. We grow our own food for our own people. That might be an option. But you know what? Montana would run out of room if we all decided to do that. So I think we've got to find another way around this issue. And the good news is that when we turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, here's what we see. We see a great promise of God that speaks to this very issue. And what we'll see is that no matter what our situation, what our circumstance, what our future prospects, we always, we always, always, forever have one true and great advocate. He will not grow tired. He will not grow old. He will not pass away. He will always be available at every moment to hear our plight. He is for us, he is not against us. He has become like us in every way so that he might sympathize and empathize with any situation, any condition of our heart, any crisis of our faith that we might encounter. He is our great high priest. And of course, his name is Jesus. In Hebrews, we've seen how the author, the preacher, we've called him, puts Jesus up to and has us compare Jesus with all the other things, uh, particularly that were available in the Jewish faith. In chapter 1, we saw that God's communication by Jesus was greater than his communication, even through the prophets. Chapter 2, we saw that Jesus was actually greater in both mission and power than the angels. And in chapter 3, we saw that Jesus is the great deliverer even more of a deliverer than Moses. And today we'll see how Jesus is a greater high priest even than the high priests of Israel. So before we uh, jump right in, I want to just set this up a little bit because we need to understand what the high priest was to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people, because for them when they heard what we're about to read, all these images, all this meaning would flood into their mind. But of course, most of us did not grow up uh, in a Jewish home or in the Jewish religion, so we don't understand the high priest. And in fact, the role of the high priest has changed a lot since this time and since uh, the Old Testament times, which the writer of Hebrews is referring to. So what was the high priest, and why is it so important that Jesus was a greater high priest? Well, first, the high priest was, of course, higher than any other priest. So there was many priests within uh, the, the Israelite uh, community and nation, and the high priest was the pinnacle of the profession, you could say. So the high priest was appointed by the people, and he would perform uh, the ceremonial Religious rituals and duties that were laid out by uh, Israel and the law of Moses. And the high priest would preside over all the other priests and in fact over kind of the political arm of the temple as well, uh, the Sanhedrin. And throughout most of the history of Israel, the high priest was chosen from from among one people group. That was the descendants of Aaron. And Aaron was the brother of Moses who we talked about last week. And Aaron was right there from the beginning when God sent Moses to free the people from Egypt and slavery. So from Aaron's line, bloodline, came the people of the priesthood. Now this, of course, uh, changed as time went on. In the New Testament times when this was written, you didn't have to be uh, technically a Levite from the line of Aaron to participate as the high priest. But the idea is still there, that it's passed down through this particular people. Now, what were the duties of the high priest? Well, the high priest had responsibilities, uh, as I said, to see over the ceremonial law, that it was enforced, that the covenant was kept between God and the people. So all the temple duties. So in Israel, there was one temple that was sort of uh, the central religious uh, place for all Israelites. And so during special holidays and festivals, people would travel to Jerusalem and to the temple because the temple was the center, and that's where the high priest presided. And the prime responsibility, of course, and it was a tremendous responsibility, was to direct the hearts of all the people of God towards Yahweh their God and fulfillment of the covenant covenant. And so um, you would see the high priest, he would be performing ceremonies, sacrifices, giving offerings, blessing the people. Perhaps a good way to think of it is he was something of the Pope to the people of Israel. He got to wear fancy clothes and hats and things like that. And then once a year... Once a year, the high priest only was allowed to enter into what was known as the Holy of Holies, and this was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You've probably heard it, heard of it. It was September 22nd this year. Yom Kippur is just the Hebrew term, uh, translated Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was this central atoning ritual for the entire nation of Israel and unlike all the other sacrifices at the temple this sacrifice happened in the innermost part of the temple known as the holy of holies so if you were looking at the temple there was kind of the outer court where everybody could go and then there was the temple and it was something of a rectangular building and as you'd walk in this was where um, there was Uh, The lampstands, and there was incense offering, and there was the show bread, and most of the rituals would happen in there by the priests. Of course, outside of the actual physical building, there was sacrifices that were happening in the courtyard, but then within the temple, in the far back area of the temple, it was known as the Holy of Holies, and there was a veil that Uh, came from ceiling to the floor that blocked it off, and only once a year could anybody go beyond the veil and cross into the Holy of Holies. And what was inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic for the presence of God. And in the Ark was the tablets that the law was originally written on by Moses. And so it was this incredibly sacred holy space thought of to be the residence of God. Once a year, only the high priest was allowed to enter this room. And he would go in and he would make sacrifice for the people. But before he could make sacrifice for the people, he had to make sacrifice for himself. And he would do that by taking goat's blood and he would sprinkle the goat's blood first to atone for his own own sins. Making himself symbolically clean and worthy to then make a sacrifice, sprinkling of blood to, or for, the entire nation of Israel. And you'll see why this is so important, this imagery, to understand it in the context of Jesus, the great high priest. Okay? Starting to make sense? Starting to see what the high priest was to the people of Israel? Now, there were two main qualifications to become high priest. The first, you must be able to empathize with the people, with their frailty and the weakness of the people that you serve because you are acting as their advocate. We'll see why that's important. And second, you must be called or appointed by God. So there was, of course, this sense of not anyone could do this job You had to be called by God, and part of your calling, of course, would be to be trained up, to be an expert in the law of God, so it was a very special position. So now, Hebrews chapter 4, there's the setup so that we might understand as we read this the importance of what it's about to say about Jesus. So Hebrews, it's going to be near the back of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 4 and we're going to start in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 it says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who, is, who in every respect has been tempted as we, ha, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, being designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's a lot in there, and I wanted to explain the high priest before we read it so that you'd understand what was going on. They're call, uh, the, the, the author of Hebrews is calling him the great high priest. But to understand the true significance of why Jesus as our high priest is so important, we've got to look at the context. Always got to look at the context. So jump up with me back to chapter 4, verse 11, just right before it says that Jesus is our great high priest. And let's see why this is so important. Look with me at, in fact, let's just go straight to verse 13. It says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, whose sight? God's sight, but are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. If we do not understand the reality of these four words, we must give account, then we'll never grasp the profound good news that Jesus is our great high priest. Just like we won't understand the importance of having a math tutor if we never have our, gra- have our tests graded. Just like I'll never understand the value of a Swiffer wet jet and a scented candle if my wife never comes home after a weekend where I had the buddies over. (laughs) It's in giving account that we realize how good it is that we have an advocate in Jesus. Now don't go home and say, oh, Pastor Dave equated Jesus with a Swiffer wet jet. I don't get any royalties off of Swiffer wet jet. This is a great invention though, by the way. We must give an account. Our lives are laid bare before a perfect and a holy God. We must give account. For every single one of us in the room, including myself, we must give an account. A laundry list of our actions, our motivations, our thoughts, our deeds will be laid before a just and holy God. I think part of the reason we don't understand the good news is because we don't understand that the terrifying reality that we must give an account. What do you think is going to turn up when I give an account of my life? Lots of unfaithfulness to God, lots of rebellion, lots of flagrant disobedience to clear directives that he's given, wickedness of heart, impure motives, and general rottenness. And that's just me, the pastor of this church. So how in the world can we possibly stand before God, as verse 16 says, with confidence if this is the reality of our account? Our sin is real. Our sin separates us from God. The separation leads us into this crisis that we've been talking about. And the only thing that can close that gap, the only thing that can end the crisis is the mediation of our great high priest, whose name is Jesus. It's in this unique role that Jesus plays out his importance in the drama of our lives. He allows us to approach God with confidence. So read with me again, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed Jesus acts as our high priest, advocating on our behalf. But remember the two main qualifications for the high priest. One, he must be able to empathize with our frailty as ordinary people, the people that he serves, and he must be called by God. So does Jesus actually fulfill these roles? That's where the author takes us next. Proving that Jesus actually does fulfill this role. Read verse 5, 1 and 2. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He's just explaining what the high priest was meant to do. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since, because, he himself is beset with weakness. So why does our mediator, our high priest, need to relate to the ordinary people? I think it's very intuitive, in fact, why this is. I think we understand it inherently, this first requirement of the high priest. If he's going to mediate or advocate on my behalf, I want him to understand what it's like to be me, right? We, we kind of get this uh, intuitively. If you're going to be for me, you have to understand me Uh, politicians get this right I don't know if you've watched any of the debates or been reading any of the stump speeches of the politicians but they totally get this they get that we will not think that they'll be for us if they don't understand what it is to be us so Hillary Clinton on her website it says this I heard it in the debate as well she brought it up as many times as she could and don't worry I'm going to hit both sides of the fence here Uh, everybody's doing it Hillary says this my dad was the son of a factory worker and he could could start a small business my mom who never got a college education could see her daughter go to college everyday Americans need a champion a champion who will fight for them every single day and I want to be that champion going to work for you standing up for you and why can she do that Because her dad was the son of a factory worker. She can understand us. Jeb Bush, old Jeb, says this. This is on his homepage. First thing that you read. First thing you read on his homepage, okay, it says this. This is how I met my wife. We were on a trip to Mexico, and I saw her across the way. And then you read about his kids and how they call him Gampy. I don't know where that comes from. And then he talks about how he lost an election in Florida in 1994 and how hard that was and how he had to pick himself back up. What is he trying to do? He's trying to relate us to him. Marco Rubio does the same. He says, uh, this is on his website, and I heard him say it in the debates. His website says, Marco saw that hard work and sacrifice led to achievement. He knew firsthand what his parents did to succeed. He watched his mother work as a maid, cashier, and stock clerk. He saw his father work as a bartender, only to come home from work so late at night. We can all relate to that. And then there's Donald Trump. Well, he's a quagmire. He wants you to know he's so different than you in every way, and he's better than you, and that's, you know, at least I appreciate his honesty, because he is actually not like me in any way. He's got great hair, though. Um, So why do these campaigns work so tirelessly to make sure that we think and we see their candidates as just normal people like you and me? We know they're not, right? We know that our life and Hillary's life and Jeb's life, they're actually not really the same at all. Typically, politicians are incredibly wealthy. They fly around the country in private jets. They have teams of people telling them what to say and what to wear, doing their hair and makeup. I don't have somebody doing that for me. But yet they work so hard that you think they're just like you. Why why do they do that? Because they know that instinctively, if they're going to represent you well, you think that they need to know what it's like to be you. To mediate on your behalf, to advocate for your needs, to fight for your well-being, they must know what it's like to be you. And so they work very hard. They pay people a lot of money to write things for them so that it seems like they're just one of us. Because we want people who advocate for us to be like us. Because it's very hard to advocate for someone if you don't know what it's like. Shared experience. Here's the great news. Jesus was like us in every way. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. I know we have a lot of young professionals in the room. Many of us feel the angst of waiting for our time to come. Working for the man, waiting for our time to come. Jesus felt this. Many of us struggle knowing what's next in life. Jesus felt that. Many of us wrestle with the anxiety of changing careers. Jesus felt that from a carpenter to a rabbi. Many of us are faced with the decision whether or not it's worth doing it God's way. Maybe we should just take a shortcut to get where we want to go. I'm sure God wants me to get there. Why don't we take a shortcut? Jesus knows that feeling. He felt it in the wilderness. Many of us feel what it's like to not have our Biological parents believe in the path we have chosen. Jesus knows what that feels like. Many of us have lost friends because of tough decisions we've had to make. So did Jesus. And many of us have been persecuted and hurt because of those choices. So was Jesus. He has experienced every condition of the heart making him Qualified to be the great high priest. But the other half of the equation is this. Not just anybody can be the high priest, right? There's another part of the job qualification. We have to be called and prepared by God, appointed by Him. Now it's incredibly difficult to balance these two things, right? To balance being like the common people and being qualified and appointed to such a high post. This was very difficult. The high priests had to have a certain level of education, a certain level of training that would naturally take them out of the common folk's experience. Now this challenge is no different. Look back to our, uh, our country's political landscape, right? Why is it so hard to find a politician capable of mediating on our behalf? Well, it's because you have to be both. Completely like us so that you can feel what it's like to be us, but completely qualified in order to run a country or a state. And the tendency is to be either really good at one thing, which makes you really bad at the other thing, right? It's very hard to be both. So either we find a politician that's completely like us and we feel like, I can relate to that politician. I can see, you know, just a good old boy, right? But then we get really, really upset when they're put in this position and we feel like they don't have what it takes to do the job. The other side of the equation is, man, they are qualified, they have what it takes, they have the intellect, they have the experience, they have the courage But then when we really look at them, honestly, we're like, they're not that much like us. They don't know what it's like to be me. And so the tendency is to not have both. Here's where the one-of-a-kindness of Jesus comes in. This is where it's so crucial. It had to be Jesus. It had to be this way. And one of the best ways to see this uniqueness is through the titles that Jesus is given in the Gospels. The first title is Son of God, and the second title is Son of Man. And you may have wondered, why is he called one thing here and the other thing there? Because it's trying to highlight the truly unique part of this Jesus, that he is fully God, Son of God, and he's fully man, Son of Man. Both are present in the person of Jesus. And why is that so important? Because the mediator stands between The almighty, powerful, holy God the Father, and sinful, failing, weak human beings. Who is capable to stand? Jesus, fully God and fully man. And he connects us, he is the great high priest our mediator, our advocate, because he's experienced both. He's experienced the creation God created through him. We saw that in the first chapter of Hebrews. And he's been a man, born of the Virgin Mary, lived as a boy, was raised, learned a profession, had friends, was betrayed. He's experienced both, and so he stands between, and he reconnects us, closing the gap. But there's one more unique thing about Jesus. Read again with me chapter fi- or verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Here's this, right? And we've always said he can also understand God. But there's something important about Jesus' humanity that's different than our humanity. He can sympathize with our weakness because he's fully man. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, okay, and here's the difference, yet without sin. Jesus would not be capable to be the great high priest, the last high priest, if in becoming fully man, he also took on our sinfulness. So he's fully man, he can connect with us, but yet without sin, making him holy enough to stand in the presence of God and advocate on our behalf. Does that make sense? That is the importance of Jesus' full divinity. thing that you'll notice in uh, verse chapter 5, verse 6 is this. Yet you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus... Every other high priest lived and died and somebody replaced him. Jesus is a forever high priest. He's not going anywhere. He's not getting old. He's never stepping down. His term is not limited. It's forever. And he's after the order of Melchizedek. And (laughs) should the Lord tarry, we will come to an explanation of Melchizedek. I won't get in it tonight. But the basic idea is he's a different kind of high priest. He comes from a different order. He's his own sort of political party. It's a party appointed from God, not by man. Okay. Now look with me at chapter 5, verse 7 through 10. We have this perfect mediator that stands between a holy God... And sinful humanity. And he perfectly fits the qualifications necessary to mediate, to advocate on our behalf. But look, too, at this beautiful three-verse passage. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. These verses show how intensely Jesus entered into the human condition. I think sometimes when we think about Jesus, we think, oh, clearly praying for him was so easy because he's the son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned to pray. And he prayed through tears, through loud cries. And God heard him, not because he was the son, but because of his reverence. Let that sink in. I think we say, I could never be like Jesus because he was the son. And of course it was easy for him to connect with God. He was the son. God didn't hear him because he was the son. The father heard him because of his reverence. Jesus teaches us how to pray with loud cries and tears. What does reverence look like? Weeping. Crying out to God because you know that he's mighty to save. I was convicted this week as I read that. Jesus cried out and wept as he prayed. How often do I pray like that? How often do my prayers look like Jesus? The one who was without sin. How much louder should my cries be? How much deeper should my weeping be? Knowing that I am with sin, and I am far from God, and the distance is wide. Yet the one who was without sin, even he, wept as he, as he prayed. And I actually think you might think, this, this passage we've been looking at tonight, you know, high priests, and Old Testament ritual, and sacrifice, and day of atonement, like, how does that relate to me? This passage is actually all about prayer. How do we pray and connect and relate to this almighty, holy, perfect God? It's all about prayer. Jesus teaches us, teaches us, teaches our community, teaches the church that he serves through shared experience of weakness, that it's possible to come to God, to come to the throne of grace with confidence. Picture with me a sanctuary. Prayer actually creates a sanctuary in time when a physical one might not be available in space. Prayer creates a sanctuary might not be available in space. Not in space, in space, time and space. So picture with me, we're going to go into a little bit of uh, visualization. Picture with me the throne room of God. This is a heavenly sanctuary that we're invited into. We're invited to enter into it every time we're in need. Every time we need to speak to the Father to bring our prayers of petition and supplication and praise, we're invited into this throne room. But often, in fact most often, if I look at my own life, I fail to actually enter this room. Why? Why do I fail to actually pray with earnesty and reverence and honesty in my times of need, I think it's because I convince myself that God has no time for me. I convince myself that God cannot hear me. I convince myself that God doesn't want to hear me. I convince myself that God doesn't have enough grace and mercy for me. Why? Because I'm convinced that God cannot. And should not understand my plight. I convince myself. We convince ourselves. That there are no familiar faces. In that throne room. So often when I pray. I try very very hard to picture myself. Stepping in to the throne room of God. Stepping towards the throne of grace. It helps me to clear the distractions. It helps me to enter this sanctuary, to clear the noise, to focus in on the heaven reality, which is my prayer life. But as I thought about that this week, as I thought about why it's so hard to enter that room, even even most times for me, it brought back to mind uh, this imagery I have this imagery of entering into a room for the first time. And as I thought about it, what I had actually was not like a, a memory, like a real memory, but just kind of this vividness of, of the sensation that came along with it. And I think the reason why I had uh, not an not a actual memory, but just the sensation, is because I think this has happened to me so many times That it's just become sort of this abstract sensation that I feel uh, rather than just uh, a one moment in time. And the vividness of this sensation all centers around those moments right before you enter into a new room. You know what I'm talking about? Like a room where you've never been in that room and you're not sure what's on the other side of that door. For me, like the first day of class in elementary school was like this. You're not sure who's in your class, and so you're walking in, and it's like, it's like serious crisis mode, right? You're like, what's going to be on the other? What's this teacher going to be like? Who are my classmates going to be? You know, this was like pre-internet time, so you didn't really know who was in your class. I had the same sensation when I'd walk into a new living situation in college. Who's going to be on the other side of that door? Who's going to be my roommate? I had it in my new classes in college. Am I going to be alone in here? So the sensation that I have is one right of anxiety and fear, the unknown it's palpable. Are you track are you, are you feeling with me? I want you to feel this with me it's the It's the anxiety of the unfamiliar room. and I think what's wrapped up in it more than anything, not like. Oh, what's on the other side of the door? What's the furniture going to be like? You know, like, what's that chalkboard going to have written on it? That's not what the anxiety comes from. The anxiety comes from is that when I open that door, when I step in, and I look at all the faces in the room, will I know any of those faces? Maybe, maybe you all went to a Halloween party this weekend, and you had that anxiety. I got invited. I don't know how I got on this invite list, but I'm going to go. And you walk in, and you're not sure if you know anybody. I think that's what the anxiety, that there's not a familiar face in the room. I think this is a pretty common experience that we have. And I think the fear of that, the fear of the unfamiliar room, keeps us out of a lot of rooms. I know this because sometimes I have the courage to open that door, and I'm so glad that I entered into that room. But the fear of not knowing any faces on the other side of that door keeps us from entering. But here's the very good news. Here's the very good news. What I've also found associated with this sort of breathtaking uh, anxiety and experience that I have of entering the new room is that oftentimes associated with that is one of the greatest joys that I've ever experienced. And they're right alongside each other this joy I only experience if I've also had the experience of the anxiety and that's the joy that's the sensation of the familiar face Chris Katie Kate I didn't know you were in this class I didn't know you lived here I didn't know you were coming to this party And when your eye makes contact with that familiar face, there's a joy that swells up inside of you. It's the sensation of the familiar face. And why is it so profound, that experience of opening, turning the doorknob, and seeing the familiar face? Because you realize in that room, I mean, it doesn't even have to be the closest of friends. You know that you've got an advocate Someone who will mediate on your behalf, who will help you assimilate into that new space. It's the familiar face of the advocate in the unfamiliar room. I think it's a profound experience. It's an unparalleled feeling. It's the feeling that you'll have when you press past your fear... You turn the knob, and you step into the throne room of grace. And you think that there's nobody in there who knows what it's like to be going through what you're going through, to experience the deep suffering that you're experiencing, that can know what it's like to be you. You think nobody will be in that room that gets me. And then you see the face of Jesus, and you realize he's been there. He knows what it's like to be you He's suffered like you've suffered. He's lived like you've lived. He's walked in your shoes. He's felt like you've felt. He's prayed like you've prayed, and he's wept like you weep. It's the familiar face of Jesus. And he's standing there waiting for you to just step into the room. He can't force you in, but he's waiting there. And you'll turn that knob and you'll walk in and you'll see him. And you'll say, why didn't I come sooner? What have I been waiting for? I can't believe that I've stayed out of this room. Oh, why do I keep doing it? Why do I keep not entering? In my own life, so often I stay out of the throne room of God. I stay far back from the throne of grace. Why don't I step and move forward with confidence, knowing that Jesus is advocating for me. He's mediating with the Father. He's standing in between me. He is our high priest. The throne room is the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, it says that the veil was torn. And no longer is it one man who gets to step into the Holy of Holies once a year. But every day we have the chance, through Jesus, to step in to the holiest place in the universe. The throne room of God. It's such good news. Jesus makes it possible. Step forward with confidence. Stop being afraid to enter. You're invited into the space. It says, verse 15, excuse me, 16, let us, the idea here is again and again, let us again and again with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Jesus is standing there waiting for us. To distribute all that we need, all the grace, all the mercy, step towards the throne. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. You are perfect and holy. You don't have to offer us an advocate. You don't have to offer us a mediator. You don't have to close the gap. But you choose. You chose. You sent your son, fully God, fully man, to stand in the gap so that in our time of crisis, in our time of need, we're not alone. We're not our only advocate. We've got a greater advocate, a great high priest whose name is Jesus, standing, waiting for us to enter the room, and he's already intervening, he's already advocating, he's already mediating on our behalf. Help us to know that tonight. Help us through these next three songs to draw near to the throne of grace, to see the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy available in Jesus Christ. He is uniquely qualified for the task. And nothing is stopping him except our unwillingness to step towards him. Help us to step towards Jesus tonight. In in his name we pray. Amen.